Amen. Please be seated. You can turn with me in your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. I will read verses 12 through 20. My focus will be on several selected passages. I have them printed on the insert for you to look at. I have resisted over these several months from always alluding to the fact that it's the last time we'll be in this building for whatever service it is. You know how that is. It's the last time we'll be together in this place and sing Kumbaya and be excited about it. But what I want to point out to you is this is Easter Sunday, and Easter Sunday is the high point of the church calendar. Now, we celebrate it every Sunday because we don't believe that Jesus' resurrection is some kind of ideal out there or some lesson for us to learn from. We believe it historically happened that Jesus Christ was raised again from the dead. And that's the basis for the church. Now, we can have all sorts of diversity and discussion about a lot of things, but it starts here. Did Christ raise again? And that's why we're here. That's why I'm doing what I'm doing, and I think that's why you're here, and I think that's why you're living the life you're living. In that light, it's the last time. The last time we're going to have Easter Sunday service in this place. And while the place we're going to move to will really... Uh, how do you, it'll kind of dwarf what we're here in as far as the, aesthetically and so forth. Some special times have happened here in this building at this time, and seeing your faces, our gatherings for the worship of God. You know, we've been a busy, busy church, and I want to try this morning to bring us back to the basics, see through the lens of our busyness, our motion, our action, our reaction, our progress. That's true corporately. I think it's true personally. Our lives are busy and fast, and so let's see through that and connect with this Basic truth again, the truth of the resurrection and how that gives new perspective on all that busyness and all that stuff, all that activity. I won't tell you to slow down. I'll just tell you to make sure where you're heading is towards an eternal goal. Hear now God's word as I read 1 Corinthians 15, 12 through 20. Now, if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. We are even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise, if it is true that the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile, and you are still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in this life only we have hoped in Christ, we are of all people most to be pitied. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. Let us pray. Lord, we are so grateful that you have given us a living Savior. Lord Jesus, uh, we do not worship you as a dead ideologue who once led a formal, former people to liberation or victory or some other earthly feat. But rather, Lord Jesus, we know that you're seated at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. And you, from there, you will come to judge the quick and the dead. And I pray, Lord, that we would worship you anew this morning, not only by the songs we sing, the readings we recite, but also the meditations of our heart and also the way our life would be changed as a result of a new perspective on life in light of the resurrection once again. Bring us back to basics, Lord, in the midst of our busyness, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Why is there so much joy and so much excitement? Every year I always feel a certain level of electricity on 
Easter Sunday. And I know there's a, a, a kind of a lightness of spirit. And I don't want to bring it down. I just want to kind of uh, bring the real issue right home to us. Why is the resurrection such a time of joy for Christians? I believe it's because the resurrection answers two things. Our biggest dilemma and our biggest fear. My biggest fear is death. Not the life after as a Christian. It's just that I'm kind of a wimp and I don't like pain. And I don't want the process. In Christ, I no longer fear the fact of death because it's going to happen. It's just the process I'm hoping isn't so painful, right? So there's a sense in which death, we all resonate with fear. Even if you're a believer, no one wants to go through pain. But if you're an unbeliever, if you're unsure, you of all people are struggling because you don't want to talk about death because you don't have an answer to it. In your mind, in your heart, there's still something unsettled. You know it. You, you smile on the outside, be at church on Sunday, look religious, but in your heart, you're just not sure about it. And it brings you fear. And you recognize that it's your biggest fear, but it's also your biggest dilemma because no one has dodged it yet. Christ has defeated it. So eternally we look forward, but no one has dodged death as such. All have been, with the very few exceptions, translated from life to death. Now, in light of this, I want to submit to you this challenge. In my sermon, you're going to be excited to hear this. My sermon is only 10 minutes long this morning. Now, my introduction is about 25 minutes. <laughs> However, I would like to start on the front end with a thought process to help us take a corporate thought I want to paint for you, and I especially welcome those who are visitors to join in with what I'm saying. I'm going to talk about a lot of the history of what God has brought to us and the change that we have gone through as a church. So I, I hope that blesses you, and I hope for those old-timers that that will bring another refreshment to your mind about what God has done, but also recognize the fact that we're always in flux. It's always busy. It's always reactionary, actionary, motion-filled, uh, ever-changing, and we have to constantly remember that there is a simple reality that we must be attached to, our union with Christ and his resurrection, and it should drive our busyness then. So I want to try to bridge these two things by telling a little bit of the story of our church, and then at the end, come together with our, my 10-minute sermon on this passage before us. Now, I would submit to you, before I start talking about these things, I would submit to you that God has given us a visible safeguard as a church, a visible safeguard in our own proximity, and that's all I'm going to tell you right now, to help us keep things basic, keep our focus right amidst all the change. Now, Redeemer had already been meeting for some three years before buying this land church was about 50 or 60 members. I don't really know exactly how many attended. I only know the membership role was 50 to 60 when they bought this first 10 acres out here in which was basically the boonies to most of us. Now, if you have been here more than 10 years in the area, you know what this area looked like 10 years ago, even just five years ago. But 10 years ago, there was nothing around here except this home that the Og family built that was our first place of worship. And they built it for the retirement, thinking in terms of uh, escaping the suburban sprawl. And uh, that's why they built it. And they had horses out here, and it was 20 acres that they had in this plot. It was beautiful land, big, nice white fence around it all. And they realized what was happening, and they decided to sell their land. And that's when the small group of Redeemer members pooled their money together, some giving of their children's college education fund to buy that first 10 acres that we were on. And that's all we could afford. It was the most we could afford, 1996. Since that time, things have just not stopped changing and moving and acting, not just as a church, the whole area. You could just sense the kind of motion that has taken place. And I remember coming in 1997 as a seminary student after my second year to be an intern for the summer. 
And just the change, even in the three months that I was here in the summer, was remarkable with regard to the landscape and what was being built and what was happening and the people that were coming and the, the way the area was growing. It's change, it's motion, it's action, it's constant flux. I mean, from, the, from day one, that's what I remember sensing. Now, my wife tells me I'm the kind of person that thrives on that kind of change and, and doesn't stay, you know, just focus on one thing all the time, and she's probably right. So it really just resonated with me. And when I remember looking out and saying, wow, what will God do in this area, in this place? And the change didn't take long. It just started to come. And I remember being an intern and then the assistant pastor and uh, the associate pastor and the senior pastor. And then Nathan came. I remember the school with eight kids and now 208 kids. And I remember... 50 or 60 and 300 and all the different things that were happening and the changes in the lives that were being changed and transformed. It wasn't just us. Another church built just on the other side from us. Just in this, over in this corner, Grace Church just built their church. They're as old as we are. They just built their building here just, a couple, just this last year. And so if you look then to your south, I remember the middle school being built. I thought, wow, that's a big middle school. That's bigger than any high school I remember. And then the high school started getting built and at that time was the biggest high school project in all of Kansas. And that school went up. And then to the north, we find out that there's three to 400 homes that are going to be built in the next three years. 50 or 60 right here, our next door neighbors at one time. And I thought to myself, wow, things are just changing and happening. And as a church, things are cha changing and happening. And it's wonderful. It's exciting. But it can be so easy in the midst of that busyness and that change. In fact, we start living for the change, or we live for the changes in the flux and the motion, and that we lose sight of the most basic of realities about our lives, that they're passing quickly. But I'd submit to you, God's given us visible reminder about this, but I'll get to that in a moment. Flux, transition, constant, constant change. Now you can tell as you look around this area that there's still more coming. Uh, we were going to have a neighbor, but a vote nixed that. Just down the way, we're going to have a stadium built. I don't know what kind of neighbor that would be, but it would be great to ride down and see a game. But you know that even though that's not going to happen, something else is going to happen there. Something else will be placed there. Change, constant change, all except for one thing, and I'll get there in a moment. The landscape has certainly changed. I remember looking in the backyard, preaching in the other building in our sanctuary that was uh, once a family room and so forth, and you could even, if you walked on a certain part of the floor, many of you will remember, you could, re you could find where the foundation for the old fireplace was, right in the middle of the sanctuary. And as I was preaching one time, I remember an early service, and it was just getting light because it was in the winter months, and there were deer walking right across. There was pasture, wheat fields, no building in the back. I thought, if that just happened today. Anyways, those deer go by. And I remember just people stopping and looking at the beauty of it. Just the beauty of it. And just how different it is now. How many more people are here now in this area and so forth and the change. And I think of the lives. I watch sometimes. My office used to be where Pastor Nathan's office is. And when this, these buildings weren't here, I'd look out the street and I remember seeing all the minivans go by, and those minivans represent busyness to me. I have one, and it means carting kids around. It means activities. It means fellowship. It means good things. It means just constant motion. And how easy it is in the midst of the busyness of the suburbia to lose sight of the most basic things. And praise God, I think he's given us something I'm going to alert you to that will constantly remind us of the most basic things. I'll get there in a minute. Subdivision after subdivision. I remember coming in, um, I grew up kind of in what's called a, a, a rural suburb. It was, it's, it's spread out more and there wasn't nearly as much growth. And I remember coming here and being struck by the subdivisions and the perfections of the way they're built in the thing called the cul-de-sac, which I'd never heard of before I got here. All over the place. 
addresses. Try to find an address. I think 80 of you probably live on 150th Terrace somewhere. <laughs> or Circle or Lane or what have you. I mean, couldn't they at least name it after people? You know, it's just got to be numbers. And, and uh, just the uniformity of it all, the comfort of it all, the insulated nature, the isolated nature in a sense. And uh, the lawn's looking so good and the kids' toys out and the, the Johnson County beige just running throughout. Right? Anyone who's gone against the beige, you know what I'm talking about. All so much change. None of it is evil at all. I'm not say saying that. I'm just saying, brothers and sisters, let's not get just caught in the stream uh, going so fast that we can't see what's on the shore. And I think God's given us something to help us stay rooted. And you're probably wondering what. Well, immediately to our west, unlike most new churches that have ever been built recently, immediately to our west, is the Pleasant Valley Cemetery, and I thank God for it every day. I drive in and out multiple times, and I see multiple times that they constantly come. Almost every week, sometimes twice a week, they come. They constantly and consistently come. So in the midst of the long lines picking up kids and the minivans going back, back and forth, the change happening to our east, to our west, to our north, I always see the same similar thing that never ever changes, and it's going on in other places, that is they come. Who comes? Well, I don't know their names. But on a regular basis, people come to dig graves in the Pleasant Valley Cemetery. On a regular basis, it never stops. In fact, let me take you back 150 years when this land was 160 acres owned by an Indian who had the land patented to him in 1854. His name was Tonoi Seisei. He was a Shawnee Indian. He owned the land and then began selling parts of it off. But before the land was ever sold off, the first grave diggers had already come to what is now Pleasant Valley Cemetery because before 1881, when it was incorporated as a cemetery, uh, there were already 40 people interred there. So the grave diggers had already started coming to that place. No major homesteads in the area, farm homesteads, a distance away, and that became a place where they started burying their dead. A man named John Divilbis bought it in 1880 and turned 10 acres, that 10-acre spot that it is now, into Pleasant Valley Cemetery. The first person ever buried there was a citizen of Morse, the little town just over the way. As John Divilbis paid only $15 per acre for that land, $150 for that cemetery. Time has changed. I think probably initially the grave diggers, when they came, were simply the family of the person who died, and they, they dug the grave. That's still done constant, consistently in rural America. I think probably some years later when tractors came into more use, I'm sure farmers would help dig those graves, but they would come. You can be sure of that. I think probably in the 1950s or the 1960s when it was sold again uh, to new ownership, that's when the modern grave diggers that I see come now come, but they come. They come on a regular basis. In fact, if you analyze it, there are 2,200 people interred. There are earthly homes interred in that place. 2,200. It's a lot. It's room for several thousand more. If you break that down, that means over the last 150 years, there have been almost two per, year, two per month that would be buried there. Now, I am sure of this. I am sure of this. Since I've been here for the last 10 years, I'm sure that it's on a weekly basis, if not twice a week. And many of you know because you come by and you'll see. And how many of you really stopped to think about what happens there? I've seen military, uh, military uh, funerals. I've seen Indian funerals. I've seen every kind of funeral you can imagine just out my door. 
And you know, I just told you what took, I, I just in five to seven minutes told you what took 10 minutes off of my wife and I's life. 10 minutes from the time we came here to the time we are now. Wonderful time well spent, but you know how fast it's gone? I mean, I came here, I had nothing, we had no kids, no kids, only a cat. Now we don't have a cat and we have three kids. 10 years, 25 to 35, well, wonderful time spent, and I'm so thankful for the cemetery because I used to walk through it. When we stayed here that summer, we'd walk through it. We'd look at the, at the, the epitaphs, we would read what they say, and there's one who's buried there. It's a member of our church. Bo Bogish was, was buried there in the year 2000. A faithful man of God. One of the original founders that will buy this land. And he's there buried. His earthly home is. It keeps us grounded, I would submit to you, as we consider what it represents. That they keep coming. And they're going to keep coming. They're not going to stop coming. None of us are going to avoid the fact that they're going to come. And they're going to dig those holes. In fact, when they come to dig them, they don't necessarily have a smile on their face or a frown on their face. They just do it as a matter of fact. They build big ones and small ones. They don't discriminate. They just do what they're sent to do, as the occasion makes clear. Soon enough, soon enough, it remains sure that they will come. They'll come. Pleasant Valley isn't a big cemetery. It's relatively unknown to most people probably in Johnson County. But for us, it's there constantly as a reminder. And as I drive in and out of the property multiple times each day in many cases, the Lord has providentially ordered that that cemetery be exactly where it is and where this church be exactly where it is. I think it's a blessing for a young church to have a cemetery that close, to think about what it means, about what our message is, why we're here, why it so directly relates to what happens there. So many want to just put death out of their minds. They don't want to talk about it. They want to listen to preachers preach about nothing just so they can shut their mind off for an hour and a half and go on shutting it off throughout the week. Well, the fact is there's going to be a hole dug in there someday and my earthly remains are likely going to be put in there. In that light, because of that brevity, I want to do something now that matters. That's the point of the resurrection. We can do things that matter. Our life has meaning. Our life has purpose. In fact, we need to do a real analysis, a real evaluation of what we are about. Because they're going to come. They're going to come. And no one in Christ here should be fearful of that. Rather, they should refocus now and retool to serve for eternity, no matter how much time you've got before they come. And when they come for us, that's not even hardly the end for us. That's only the beginning, really, of all eternal life. So with this short period of time here now, Let's spend our days focused and clearly purposeful about what we are placed here. It couldn't be a better picture of a church here and a cemetery there and how everything in between is answered by this place, by God's word preached here. We do all sorts of things to defy age and time, skin care, vitamins. We even subject ourselves to just horrible foods to get three to five more years of our life. Surgery, pills, oxygen chambers, even some clothes that we wear, the company we keep, the attitudes we want to constantly hear, but they keep coming, brothers and sisters. You know, every hour, just in the time we'll meet, 5,417 people will die just in the hour of our worship service. You can't stop this. And for the believer, it's almost like a challenge. We only have so much time, so let's go forward to bring honor, bring glory to Christ. Everything about suburban America keeps us... Uh, free from thought or confrontation on this subject. Let us not be that way. I don't mean sit around and talk about when we're going to die all the time. 
I just simply mean let's be realistic and be thankful that we, among all people, have the one thing that answers that fear and solves that dilemma, the resurrection of our Savior, to whom we are united by faith. That's why I don't despair, and that's why you shouldn't despair either. Now, with that introduction, look together with me at verse 12 of 1 Corinthians 15. All of 1 Corinthians 15 is of extreme value to every believer and every person who seeks the truth. Look at verse 12 and verse 13 together with me. Now, if Christ is proclaimed, is raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, not even Christ has been raised. What was happening in the church of Corinth is there were there was misunderstanding about the bodily nature of the resurrection. It's not that people necessarily believed that you died and were annihilated or had no further existence, or many probably believe there was some existence, but it wasn't bodily. And so this would have violated much of what had proceeded biblically, and so Paul's trying to, by way of syllogism, explain how this thinking cannot be right, and it, it strikes at the heart of our religion when we speak in terms of there being no resurrection just as a matter of fact. That's what he says in ver then in verse 13. But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. Now, Paul knows that in the Old Testament, there are at least three resurrections that are spoken of. In the New Testament, six more, including the resurrection of Christ. So clearly, historically, resurrections happen, have happened. Obviously not a normal thing, and it's only done by the power of God for special revelatory purposes at the time that they were performed. But they happen, and by Paul's time, they had already happened. And we're told that even the apostles were used of God to raise some who were dead. So resurrection was a fact, not something that had to be denied. And if there were, was no resurrection, that it couldn't happen, then Christ couldn't even be raised. Now that leads us down a road that we've got to analyze. And he analyzes it from the negative so as to accent the positive, as we think about it, verse 14, and if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain, and your faith, by the way, is in vain. In other words, vain meaning useless, wasteful, worthless. And I was telling the kids this week in chapel, in the middle of the week, I said to the Westminster students, uh, and I was preaching on the resurrection, and it just kind of dawned on me, looking at these little faces, I don't know how much of it they grasp, but I think quite a bit, I said, you know, if the resurrection is not true, I'm wasting my time with you. I mean, we're all wasting our time. I mean, everything that we put our hopes into come up through the resurrection and its truth. And kids, you're wasting your time too. And I know some of them probably agree that they were, but that was a different matter. As I tried to explain to them that the resurrection is the very thing that gives us hope. It's the way we look at education. We, we even look at everything we learn in the world through the lens of the way God has given us light concerning it. Well, if this is not true, then we, who are we? We're just, we're just wandering around aimlessly. In my preaching, all this effort I put in, I should be doing something else, all sorts of other things but this. And it's that serious. It's a total waste, what I'm saying, if Christ is not raised again. Many other things I should be doing. But here's the thing. Your faith also then is in vain if Christ is not risen. Let's just be honest about it. It is a watershed issue. Our preaching, the whole of the apostles' teaching he's talking about is vanity. And your faith, the whole of what you believe, about what God has revealed through the apostles and the prophets is vain if Christ is not raised again. Verse 15, we are even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that he has raised Christ. So we're liars on top of it, whom he did not raise if it is true that the dead are not raised. This, this wonderfully Greek logical process that 
Paul takes people through. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised in verse 16. And then verse 17, almost a direct parallel to verse 14. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith, and he uses the word now, futile, is futile, and you are still in your sins. Not only is your faith useless, wasteful, worthless, and futile, but you are stuck in the same dilemma you had before, that is, you're in sin. Now let me please point out something here. Paul is not saying that if Christ has not been raised again, that you got to try another religion out, or that some other religion will answer the problem for you. He's not saying that. Please see what Paul's saying by what he's not saying. He's saying if Christ is not raised again, there is no other answer. Moses can't help you. He's dead. Buddha can't help you. He's dead. Confucius can't help you. He's dead. Mohammed can't help you. He's dead. So if Christ is not raised, we've got no plan B. I mean, it's that serious. So it's either Christianity is true, as the scripture relays it, and the apostles and the prophets display it, or it's absurdity. And Albert Camus, the great existentialist who killed himself in despair, he'd be right. Those are the options. It's not Christianity or one of these other religions. It's Christianity, the only one, the only belief, the only trust that is in a living Savior who defeated death. Everything else is trusting someone dead saying something. And no offense, but they're not going to help us with our problem because they got it themselves. He says very clearly that if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. Verse 18, then those who have fallen asleep, all your loved ones, all the ones you look forward to seeing again, they too have perished. And perished here is connected to being under their sins. So this means eternal perishing. This is under condemnation they have died then, if Christ is not raised. Verse 19, if in this life only we have hoped in Christ, we are of all people most to be pitied. In other words, and this this doesn't mean, by the way, that uh, we're to be pitied because we didn't go out and have fun like all the heathens are having fun. It's not what it means. It means that for the Christian who's walking with Christ and living for Christ, there will be a level of persecution and danger that accompanies him or her. That's what happened in Paul's life and those believers of the first century and the majority of Christendom outside of America. It's a great price they pay to claim the name of Christ. And so we're most pitiable if all there is is this life and grabbing all of it that you can get. It's most pitiable that you would spend it, risking it, dying prematurely for it. That's what's pitiable. That's what's being spoken of here. If in this life we have hoped only in Christ, we are of all people most to be pitied. But brothers and sisters, of all the transitions in Scripture, this is one of the greatest in verse 20. But, having said all that, Paul, the Jewish scholar who can roll with any Greek philosopher, says, but in fact, that is rooted in historical surety, Christ has been risen, has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. Paul says it with great certainty because he himself saw the risen Christ. He's not the only one that saw the risen Christ. 500 other people in the first century saw the risen Christ. And we don't put the same accent on uh, carefulness of translating the story like they did in the first century. But without a printing press, the importance of sound testimony was all the more important. But even if we didn't, I bet you the 200 people here gathered, if I walked off the chancel and fell and whacked my head on that first chair, and after you knew I was all right, there'd be a little chuckle, you go tell people about it pretty quick. I know you would, and I'd get an email from someone who wasn't here today. One of the families had gone, hey, Tony, I heard that. And then in your gatherings together for dinner, you're going to talk about it. What happened? Oh, I saw he took this step there, and you're going to put together the story. And it's gonna, you know, this is 200 people with an incidental matter that's not even important. And I guarantee it wouldn't be but five minutes, and it would get relayed to someone who didn't see it. 
and it would constantly come under scrutiny. It would constantly be considered again. And if it was false, it would be shown to be false very soon. But here, Christ rises from the dead. 500 people see him. 12 guys, 11 in particular, but a 12th Paul being added, and then a 13th with Matthias. These all witnesses of the risen Christ live their life totally different, totally transformed. 500 witnesses see. Christianity grows out of nothing. I mean, all the things that point to something, not to mention a body never being found, all these things point to the historicity of the, of the action of the resurrection itself. And so Paul says, but in fact Christ is raised from the dead. The first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. And simply put, this is where the joy comes. This is when I drive by that cemetery. I think in terms, and I think of Bo Bogish, having known him only for the, for the three years I was able to know him. What a, what a man of God he was and how for him, Christ is the first fruits of the resurrection that he too bodily will raise again. He's clearly with God now, but he'll be given a new body uh, that somehow is like the resurrection body of Christ. And not just Bo, but all of us who are in Christ. That's what it means that Jesus is the first fruit. He's gone before us. He's paid the price. God's accepted it. He's raised him. Now we're in union with Christ because we trust him for everything. And so he's the first one. And first fruit is a beautiful analogy of a plant that grows. Picture a tomato plant, as a matter of fact. And the first tomato that is red and ripe, uh, that one comes usually several days, if not a couple of weeks, before the rest come in. Uh, but that first one comes, and you see it, and you remember the harvest, and you think of how good they taste, and you think the goodness about them. And then you take that one, and there's, there's, a, there's a delay, there's a gap, but then the rest come, and they come all at once. I can attest to that. The first fruits of the resurrection is Jesus coming forth from the grave that day, early that first Easter Sunday morning. Now we await every one of us. He's the first fruits, and there will be a great harvest at the last day. The last day will bring about the greatest of all glory given to God to this point in redemptive history. The first fruits. Yes, they keep coming. They definitely keep coming. But I hope none of you here are scared of that. If you are scared of that or something just tweaks you in your soul over that, then consider the words of Paul in Romans 10 when he says, confess with your mouth, believe in the heart, in your heart, that Jesus is Lord and has been raised from the dead. Believe and be saved. It's a good thing if you feel a sense of fear today because you're hearing the message that you might come to Christ. I want to close with just a a touching upon or reading the scriptures that are there also listed on your insert because I believe these bring to even more visibility in connection with the Pleasant Valley Cemetery that we can see every day. The truth of Christ's resurrection and its application. Look at verse 42 of 1 Corinthians 15 there in front of you or in your Bibles. Starting at verse 42, so it is with the resurrection of the dead. What is sown is perishable, and the old versions is corruptible. That is, when our bodies are sown or, or planted into the ground, they're corruptible, decaying, broken down, and breaking down. What is raised, though, is imperishable, just like the resurrection body of Christ. Mysteriously the same, but yet different. It's imperishable. Behold, I tell you a mystery, or excuse me, it is sown in dishonor and raised in glory. It is sown in weakness, it is raised in power. So in sickness and death and brokenness, it's sown, but yet it's raised in glory with its new uh, composition, the new way God has made it. It is raised in power, verse 44. It is sown a natural body, it is raised a spiritual body. If there is a natural body, there is also a spiritual body. Thus it is written, the first man, Adam, became a living being. And the last Adam, that is Christ, became the life-giving spirit. Skip down to verse 50. 
And I'll tell you ahead of time, verse 58 is where this all comes to. Is it, it all funnels down into verse 58. Starting at verse 50, I tell you this, brothers, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, the last trumpet, that's the final judgment. For the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we shall be changed. For this perishable body must put on the imperishable, and this mortal body must be put on immortality. When the perishable puts on imperishable, and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, Death is swallowed in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Why the victory? He's the first fruit. In verse 58 should be the the way we're changed today, the way we're refocused. In light of all this, therefore, verse 58, my beloved brothers, be steadfast and movable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. One of my favorite scenes in the, the novels for The Lord of the Rings comes in the two towers when... Uh, King Theoden, who has been under the veil of darkness because of a curse. Of the, uh, you, if you're not familiar with it, it's good versus evil, and it's the world of men trying to fight off the world of evil in need of a representative. And so there's Theoden ready to face an army of thousands and thousands, and there seems to be no way that good could beat evil. It's inevitable that they will come and they will fight and they will hurt as a result of the fight. So Theoden has a discussion with Aragorn just before the battle is going to begin. Theoden says to Aragorn, a great host, you say. In other words, how big is this army? And Aragorn says, all of Isengard, the center for evil, is emptied out upon us. Theoden says, how many? Aragorn says, 10,000 strong, at least. Astonished, Theoden then says, 10,000? Aragorn said, it is an army bred for a single purpose, to destroy the world of men. They will be here by nightfall. Theoden says, the same thing you and I should say, in light of the cross, Let them come. Let them come. But for now, brothers and sisters, we got a bunch to do. So let's get about doing it. Let's pray. Lord, the brevity of this life ought to lend us an intense focus upon the tasks at hand. Also, Lord, let no one here fear this. Let everyone here bask in the security of knowing Christ and his resurrection power. I pray, Lord, no matter where we are on the chronological scale, that none of us would get arrogant somehow to think that we're just going to live for a long, long, long time. We don't know what your will is. We know we'll live forever in Christ, and we look forward to that and submit ourselves to your service as a result. Lord, it is a poor thing to fear that which is inevitable, and in Christ we don't. Thank you, Lord, for all you have done for us. Make us constantly people that live in light of our living and risen Savior. Pray this for his glory in Jesus' name. Amen.